As we continue in our teaching series called No Perfect People Allowed, uh, this morning we are going to turn uh, to a little bit of a different story, although a quite familiar one for many people, and that is the story of Nicodemus coming to talk to Jesus. Uh, If you're not familiar with the story of Nicodemus, you probably are familiar at least with the reference John 3.16, which happens right at the the end of that interaction with Jesus uh, and Nicodemus. Where Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son into the world, uh, that everyone believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So Nicodemus is the story of a Pharisee uh, who is a religious teacher of the day coming to see Jesus by night. And one of the reasons this story is different than the other stories we've told so far is because this guy is an expressly religious man. Whereas the other people were people who... Uh, had quite obvious moral corruptness in their life. Nicodemus, to everyone looking from the outside, seemed like the best of the best. And yet, we put him in this category too, because Nicodemus, through his interaction with Jesus, and meditating deeply on the gospel, comes to realize that he's no different than a guy like Zacchaeus. So, if you have a copy of the scriptures, feel free to turn to John chapter 3. Uh, If not, feel free to listen along to this famous story. This is what John writes. John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, uh, also called the Sanhedrin. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born. And Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying that you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So in order to understand this story, which is, 
at some levels, a, a basic story. At some levels, a story we're familiar with. And, in, and at other levels, a crazy story. I mean, bizarre stuff is going on in this story. Jesus is using weird language. Nicodemus doesn't understand it. We think that we understand it, perhaps, because we kind of are familiar with some of the words, but there's deeper stuff going on here. In order for us to get at this, I, I, I want to pose a couple of questions as we move through the narrative, and hopefully as we try to answer these questions, it will help us understand exactly what's going on in this story. So the first question I have to ask uh, of this story is, why does Nicodemus want to see Jesus? We get to get at the... the motivation for Nicodemus in trying to go see Jesus? And I think the answer is twofold. Uh, in the first part, Nicodemus wants to know who he is, right? He, he wants to know who he is. This is why Jesus, uh, Nicodemus goes to Jesus at night. He does this because he's going secretly. He doesn't want anyone to know he's going. Remember, this is very different than the story of Zacchaeus, who climbs a tree in bright daylight. Nicodemus instead waits till everyone's asleep, waits till it's dark, and sneaks out to go see Jesus. Now, why would he do this? Because the group of people that he's a part of hate Jesus. Like, they don't just dislike him, they hate him. They see him as a threat to what they're trying to accomplish. They see him as a phony, a fake, a charlatan. They see him as claiming that he's God, uh, and they do not believe it. And so Nicodemus has some sense that perhaps there's something here about Jesus, but he doesn't feel in any way comfortable going in public and declaring himself to be with Jesus, so he goes at night. And what he says to Jesus is helpful in us understanding. He says, listen, Rabbi, I know that you are from God because you have done great miracles and signs, right? So he's either seen these firsthand or he's heard of them. Uh, The the miracles that Jesus is doing, the healing, the the demons being cast out, some of the other miracles that are happening. He understands for this to have happened, God has to be with him. But he doesn't understand anything else about what Jesus is teaching. So he he understands that in some sense he must be from God, but, but then who is he? So Nicodemus wants to know who Jesus is. The second thing I think we can get from this is Nicodemus wants to learn from Jesus. He very clearly calls him rabbi and says he's a great teacher. And this would have been common in that day for someone who spoke with power, someone who had the power of God working through him in signs, they would have identified him as a great teacher, perhaps even a great prophet in the Old Testament line of thinking. And for Nicodemus, who's very interested in living the right way, in worshiping the right way as a Pharisee, he wants to hear from Jesus what it is that God expects of him. How should we worship? How should we live? Are we living in the way we need to? Remember, in in the Pharisee's way of seeing the world, perhaps this is helpful, pause and say this, in the Pharisee's way of seeing the world, uh, they, they they are deeply passionate and orthodox Jewish people. Uh, They love the law that God has given them, and they see living according to the Mosaic law as the only way to get out of the current situation they find themselves in. Uh, And if you're familiar with the context, uh, the nation of Israel, the people of God, find themselves in exile. Well, they're in their land, but they're conquered by the Romans. And so for the Pharisees, they're saying the only way to have the Romans leave and for us to have freedom again and for us to be 
God's people and for God to be with us as he seems to be with Jesus is for us to live this external, beautiful, and perfect kind of life. And so the Pharisees, you might remember, are adding all kinds of rules to the, rule, to the, to the Mosaic law of like Exodus 20, so forth and so on, because they just want to make sure that they aren't accidentally breaking the law. Because it's through their moral perfection that God will be with them. And so Nicodemus sees this guy who God seems to be with. And so he must have the key. And it must be through some kind of theological or religious teaching that he can help. Because after all, the Pharisees are trying really hard, but the Romans are still ruling pretty profusely. right? And so Nicodemus wants the secret. He wants the key. He wants the silver bullet that's going to unlock this pharisaical thinking that finally we can live the right way. And so the second question we need to ask, if this is why Nicodemus wants to see Jesus, the second question we want to ask is, how does Jesus respond to Nicodemus? And this is fascinating. The first thing that Jesus does, and I like when Jesus gets like this because it kind of fits my personality, is he doesn't even let Nicodemus finish. Do you you read the story the same way I read it? Nicodemus is just going through the sort of greetings, right? Rabbi, you are a great teacher, so forth and so on. And Jesus is like, listen, if you want to even know about the kingdom of heaven, you got to be born again. Imagine Nicodemus like, whoa, I'm trying to like honor you and respect you and lay the groundwork for some deep theological questions that I have. And Jesus, almost as if to say, I know where you're going with this. Let's get right to it says, listen, if you want to even know anything about the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And obviously, to someone like Nicodemus, and quite frankly, to people like us, this is bizarre teaching, right? This, and, and let me just let you in on a secret, I think. Jesus knows that, and that's why he says it, right? He's after something very deep here that for readers like us today, we can't always get out of our own context. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He's not trying to add some new linguistic flavor to religion. He's after getting at the root of some of Nicodemus' own personal issues. And we'll talk about that here as this unfolds. Nicodemus has no clue what's going on. He's like, wow. First of all, he's flustered, right? He's trying to introduce himself. He's trying to set up his questions. Jesus says, you've got to be born again. And he's like, wait, how am I supposed to go back in my mother's womb and be born again? Like, what's done is done, Right? <laughs> And Jesus is like, no, you don't even understand. And you're one of the great teachers of Israel. You don't understand anything, do you? And so Jesus is responding in this sort of passionate and very assertive way towards Nicodemus. Why? Because Jesus is striking deeply at the religious identity of a man like Nicodemus who is representative of all of Israel of the day. And oh, by the way, I think, who is representative of much of the church in our day. And so Jesus knows exactly what he's doing when he chooses these words. He didn't want to come up with a new, cool way of calling people Christians, right? We say born again. No, he's actually cutting deeply at the identity of Nicodemus in two profound ways. Think about this. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, and not only a Pharisee, he's a ruling Pharisee. So he's part of the 70 or so kind of elite Pharisees who kind of make religious policy for the people of the day. He is like the the cream of the crop. And for anyone in that day, the beginning of that kind of reality is their birthright, 
It is to be born of Abraham, right? For a Jewish person, their birthright means everything in that context. That they were a child of Abraham means that they can point back to the covenant promise God made to Abraham and say it rightfully belongs to them. Their birthright is what gives them confidence. It's what gives them a sense of inner superiority, really, to everyone they come in contact with. Because after all, it's because of my birthright, my DNA, my Jewishness, that I'm the seed of Abraham, that I can be certain that God will embrace me. Now you tell me, does Jesus know what he's doing when he says you've got to be born again? He says, listen, I know who you were born from. I understand your DNA train comes all the way back from Abraham. I'm telling you, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be born again. You've got to have a different kind of birth than simply being Jewish in your physical constitution. And secondarily, not only in striking at Nicodemus being a son of Abraham, he's striking at Nicodemus' perceived moral superiority, right? I love this language because he doesn't say to Nicodemus, oh, you're a really good guy. Like, I've seen you and seen what you do, and, like, you're very religious, you're very pious. You just, you're just missing just this little bit here. If you would just understand this little bit here on top of all this other stuff you've done, then you would get it. Instead, he says, no, you've got to start over. He's, in essence, saying to Nicodemus, everything you've done in your religious track hasn't gotten you anywhere, hasn't moved you any closer to God. And for Nicodemus, this is going to stop him right in his tracks. It's going to force him to consider things on an incredibly deep level. Can I make this make sense to us today? By the time I was a little kid, my parents were believers in Jesus. They loved the gospel. They had responded to the gospel. They were followers of Jesus. And therefore, by osmosis, so was I. When the church was opened, I was there, right? I lived in the days, some of you too, of church services in the morning, followed by church services in the evening, followed by church services on Wednesday, right? And so we were there all of the time. And much of what I heard was this thing. And in every way that I would identify myself was as a Christian. And yet much of it was by cultural reality and not by personal need. Does it make sense to you? In the same way that Nicodemus, or that Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and say, listen, I understand that you are Jewish by birth. But there's got to be something more personal and something deeper happening there. And for many in the church today, and in all fields of religion, quite frankly, we are religious more by culture than we are by personal need and response. Does that make sense? And Jesus is saying, listen, you need a whole new experience. That's good. That's not bad. But it doesn't count in what I'm talking about. And then secondarily for us, right, we look at people from an external way, and yet God looks from an internal way. God sees the desperate need of us internally, and we tend to look at people externally and rank them, don't we? Well, that person's really good. They're really moral. They're very religious. They're very pious. That person over there, not so much, right? 
and then everyone else falls somewhere in between. And most of it is for us to be able to place ourselves somewhere appealing on the rank, right? We understand we're probably not at the top, but based upon what we're seeing, we're also not at the bottom, right? And Nicodemus would have lived this way. We understand that because this is what Pharisees did all the time. Thank God, they would pray, thank God that I'm not like that guy, right? And Jesus is constantly telling parables. Oh, there's tax collector and the Pharisee. No, by the way, the tax collector understood and the Pharisee didn't. He's constantly doing this. So Nicodemus is trying to figure all this stuff out. And Jesus says, listen, I understand your moral uh, purity and your, your, your sense of moral superiority. I understand that you check all these religious boxes off, but I got to tell you, it doesn't add up to much. In fact, you need a whole new birth in order for you to understand what God is actually doing in the world and through Jesus. And for many of us, we are counting and trusting in our religious efforts, in our church attendance. Now listen to me well. I love it when you're here. Don't, don't take that to mean like, oh, he said we don't have to come anymore. <laughs> in essence, to earn God's favor, you do not have to come. But we like when you're here, right? So in your church attendance, in your community group attendance, in your Bible reading plan, in your prayer journaling, and all these other things that are wonderfully good realities, but if you are using them as a structure to prove to God that you are worth his presence, then you haven't understood the gospel. You see it? None of those are bad things. In fact, they're good. In the same way, Jesus wouldn't say to Nicodemus, you live like a terrible person. He was saying, you're trusting the wrong thing. You don't understand. You need to start from scratch here. Please keep living like this way, but, but live that way for the right reasons. And so it is for many of us, even many of us who have heard the gospel and love the gospel, it is so easy for us to subtly continue to turn back and to believe that God owes us a bunch of stuff because we're living this pretty good life. Jesus is saying, listen, the core of the gospel says, you got to start from scratch when it comes to God. In essence, I think what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, oh, by the way, Nicodemus, you're just like everyone else. And this is a hard pill to swallow for a guy like Nicodemus, right? I mean, this guy has made his whole life about being better at religion than everyone else. Being sort of the guy to follow. And Jesus is saying, oh, by the way, Nicodemus, you're just like Zacchaeus, right? You're just like the adulterous woman. You're just like the thieves on the cross. You're no different than anyone else. But for Nicodemus, his religious identity had clouded out the reality of his internal need for a savior. Nicodemus was on his own rescue plan. And it was all about religion. When, uh, when I went to college, I went to college at a, a smaller Bible college uh, called Philadelphia College of Bible. It changed names while I was there, and it's changed names again since then. So if you can keep up with that, that's fair. But for me, it's always Philadelphia College of Bible. And what's fascinating about Philadelphia College of Bible is it's situated in this wonderful uh, upper middle class community called Langhorn, right? Kind of near Sesame Place, down there near outside of Philadelphia. 
And you come and you live on campus, and then once you, become, once you move from freshman, some of you have been there, I see you're smiling already. Once you move from freshman status to sophomore status, and they know you're in, you know, then they shift you down to the dormitories in what's called Pendel, right? And there's this weird reality that happens in, in all kinds of places, but there's a business route one that, that runs through southern Bucks County there, and Langhorne is like this uppity, nice place to be, and Pendale is like this place no one really wants to live, right? Like it hasn't been modernized in like 200 years. Everything looks bad. And we're living in this like rundown old apartment complex that I think that the community just said to the college, just take it. <laughs> it's too bad. We can't do anything with it. And so we, we lived there, right? And so to me, like this is, this is the imagery that comes to mind when Jesus is talking to a guy like Nicodemus who feels like a Langhorn freshman but is going to realize soon that he's a Pendel upperclassman. You know what I mean? And oh, by the way, in between that journey from Langhorn to Pendel were these two fascinating places, and I say that somewhat sarcastically. One was called Phil's Place, which was a bar that was always frequented by the same group of people, and they were always outside and making drunken rampages, right? And for those of us in Bible college, we would pray for those people. Right? They... They needed Jesus, and we, we needed to do, you know, we had this Pharisaic sort of look down on these people. Uh, and also on that journey was an adult bookstore, right? And so we'd always talk in class, and professors would always say, we need to do something about this adult bookstore, and we need to pick it, and we need to show them, and blah, blah, blah. And listen, adult bookstores are bad. Don't go there, all right? And, and drunkenness is not a good state of life. Don't do that either. But you get this idea of the Nicodemus kind of religious state of mind where we kind of say, oh, yeah, they need help, and never say, we need help. You see it? And Jesus is trying to drive at this reality with Nicodemus. The second thing that Jesus wants to say in responding to Nicodemus, fascinating to me, is, Oh, by the way, Nicodemus, I'm way more than a teacher. Thank you very much. Right? <laughs> you catch that in someone where they say, Nicodemus is like, Rabbi, you're a great teacher. And Jesus is like, listen, you want to know what it is like for God to be with you. I want you to, I want you to know that I've been with God. Right? He says, listen, you can't even understand the earthly things, let alone understand that I've come from heaven to come be here. Jesus is saying, I'm far more than a teacher. Why? Because you need far more than a teacher. Far more than a teacher. In fact, Jesus turns the tables a little bit, kind of sarcastically, perhaps. Jesus is good like this sometimes. He needles people. It's good. He says to Nicodemus, you're a teacher. Right? Almost as if to say, you're calling me a teacher? You're a teacher? You don't understand this? I do understand this. I'm from heaven. You're from earth. All these things. And what Jesus begins to say is, I've come to give you life. There's this, this transition that's happening in this story, whereas Nicodemus is looking for the intellectual answers to find life, and Jesus is saying, you will only find it in me as a human, as a person, as God become flesh. That the only means by which you can experience this spiritual new life is through these means. Listen, This, I think, is pretty logical. Tell me if this makes sense medically. Babies don't birth themselves, right? Is this true? I'm pretty sure it's true. I I was in 
the delivery room twice, and the, both my boys did not birth themselves, and I never want to be there again. I, <laughs> children are wonderful. The birthing process is terrifying. Because the mother, can I get an amen from the moms in the room, you go through excruciating pain and labor to bring the baby into life. And Jesus is setting up an analogy whereby he is saying, it is by me and the pain that I will take on that new life can happen. And to illustrate this, he tells this weird story from Numbers chapter 21. Now, I know you guys are all extremely familiar with the book of Numbers, but let me refresh your memory. In Numbers chapter 21, the people of Israel are angry. This is not new, right? They're always ticked off. They don't like the food, and they don't like the the weather, and they don't like the journey, right? They are the kids in the back of the car who are not happy with the snacks you packed for the trip, who are constantly asking, are we there yet? And Moses is like, oh my gosh, and he finally freaks out and smacks a rock with a stick. Parents, you get that, you know? But they get to this point finally where I think God has had enough of them too. And they're saying things like, they, uh, look it up later. I think, I think this is a direct quotation. They say, we detest this food. Right? Now God has just rescued them from Egypt, has sent down plagues, has miraculously parted waters, has rescued them in all these fashion. And their response is, we detest the food that you have given to us to eat. And then God, you know, I, this doesn't necessarily fit with my picture of God, but it's somewhat funny in this moment. He's like, I'm sending snakes, right? So so God sends snakes, poisonous snakes, into the midst of these grumbling people, and the snakes start to bite the people, and they start to, you know, be be plagued and dead. And and God, still in his grace, says, listen, says to Moses, now form a bronze serpent, put it on a stick, and raise it up, And anyone who even looks on it will be healed. So Moses does this. And all these people who've been afflicted by these snake bites out of their utter grumbling and ingratitude for God's rescue experience healing because of God's rescue for their rightful, uh, in the midst of their rightful punishment. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, I'm that guy. I'm the bronze serpent. And of all the stories he could have picked, he picked this one. Why? Because he wanted to speak to religious people, right? Here are all these people who are so certain on their birthright and their moral superiority that God is with them, and yet Jesus wants to remind them from that very history that there's something deeply wrong inside of them that leads them to live in this kind of way. And yet... God is still acting in grace to them for rescue. And their rescue will happen because Jesus has come not to teach them some new way to earn God's approval, but to be a bronze serpent lifted up in the desert so that anyone who looks on him will be healed. You know what's fascinating about this? Here's a third question. How does Nicodemus respond to Jesus? And the short answer is, we have no idea, right? The story just kind of ends. John goes into this, this kind of 
discussion. In some of your Bibles, if you have the, the words of Jesus in red, some of, some of them uh, in your Bible, you will surprisingly find that John 3.16 is not in red. That's because more recently, scholars believe Jesus probably never said that. It's actually John summarizing what has just happened in this dialogue here. We never have a response from Nicodemus. All of a sudden, John turns the story into other, into other summaries and other realities. But if we keep reading through the Gospel of John, what we find out is that Nicodemus hasn't left it. In fact, he's pondering what Jesus has said very deeply, and he's internalizing it. By the time we get to John chapter 7, the Sanhedrin, of whom Nicodemus is part, these ruling Pharisees, they're, they're through with Jesus. They just want to, to get rid of him, and they're having this big debate, and who stands up? Nicodemus. And what does he say? We need to listen to him before we condemn him. Right? He's kind of found this middle ground. I think he might be something. I'm not sure. He's pondering this deeply, and he's advocating for them to take another look at Jesus. And then we don't hear anything from Nicodemus again all the way until we get to the crucifixion, right? At the crucifixion, Jesus is on the cross, uh, and he succumbs, he breathes his last, he's finished. And, and then John writes at the end of his gospel that Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, remember this story? He negotiates with Pilate to obtain the body of Jesus. And then it says this interesting little statement. And he went with Nicodemus, and they took the body down, and they prepared it for burial. Now, this is fascinating in so many ways. Culturally, this was a job that women would have done, first and foremost. So this stands out to the first century reader of the day. But what should stand out even more to us is that Nicodemus, in trying to be this pure and holy and unblemished guy, in touching a dead body, makes himself completely ritually unclean. See this? He would have never done this. Unless he had finally believed that Jesus was who he said he was. Now what would have closed the deal for Nicodemus? The bronze serpent is lifted up on the cross. And Nicodemus gazes on him and he is internally healed. This is the gospel. Nicodemus finally realizes that he's no different than Zacchaeus or an adulterous woman or anyone else. And we know it because he makes himself like them, ritually unclean, so that he can embrace Jesus. And in so doing, He gains the very life that he has longed for and worked hard for his whole life. And yet Jesus said, you're so far off. In that moment, it's all taken care of. Fascinating. Hey, do you think it's interesting that last week when we talked about Zacchaeus, Jesus didn't say to Zacchaeus, hey, listen, Zacchaeus, you climbed a tree and stuff, and that was great. Like, thank you for making the effort. But I need to tell you something. You must, you must be born again. Why doesn't he say that to Zacchaeus? Or, if you're saying, well, maybe it's a John thing. In the next chapter of John, Jesus is going to have another very famous interaction, this time with the woman at the well. Remember that? 
how come Jesus doesn't say to her, you really need to be born again, right? Because he's like, you have like a, a million husbands, and the guy you're with is not even your husband, and all these things. He never says it to anyone except to this guy. Why? Because they all already knew it. You get it? Nicodemus didn't. Why? Because he was blinded by religious identity. And for many of us, we either remain blinded by it, or day by day, we have to keep removing the scales and remind ourselves, yes, that it is the gospel of a God who loved us so much that he would enter our mess and be lifted up so that we would just look upon him and be healed as opposed to me trying to earn that from him. If in your spiritual life, in your journey with Jesus, you are not experiencing joy and instead you are experiencing some sense of dryness, my first question to you would be, how much are you trusting in your religious identity? And if Jesus would talk to you now, would he utter some familiar words? You must be born again. Hey, listen, the phrase born again has all kinds of baggage with it. We never use it here because it has all kinds of baggage with it. The truth is born again can be translated another way and actually maybe a more appropriate way. It can be translated born from above. And what Jesus is actually saying is that's what you need. Not some kind of political alignment, not some kind of conservative set of, of, of understanding, not some weird set of legalism, right? Most people say she, you know, she doesn't, what's the phrase? She doesn't smoke or chew or go with guys who do. She must be a born-again Christian, right? <laughs> and Jesus would be like, well, she probably isn't. She's probably trusting her morality. You know? Again, not that you should do any of those things. Read Romans chapter 6. But this whole phrase, born again, is really rooted in this idea of breaking down religious identity, not in building up some kind of religious identity, which we have unfortunately used it to do. Right? And instead, the born again should lead us to the serpent that is lifted up. So that the people who have rightfully been bitten by the snakes, right, can be healed when we look at them. This is our God who comes for even religious snobs like us, or like me, I won't include you, who think in the pecking order of things, there's a whole lot of people below me. I get it, I'm not at the top, but I'm two-thirds of the way up there probably, right? I read the headlines. And Jesus has to punch me in the mouth sometimes and say, oh, all of that effort, thanks for that, but it hasn't gotten you anywhere. You're just like them. And instead of looking down your nose at them, perhaps you should fall on your knees and praise me for my grace with you and pray that they would find it. Can I pray with you?